Hello and welcome back. You're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. I'm your host, Adam Rosen. So thanks again for uh, tuning in. You know, I've been kind of scouring um, some of the old classic literature, you know, trying to cover a lot of those classic uh, classifications um, and also studies and articles that I think offer still some relevance, um, even though they may be uh, quite outdated as far as the technology. And and this is one of those articles. Um, and I, although you're never going to implant one of these implants uh, that they talk about, I think it's very enlightening and it's interesting to kind of read what they saw and what they thought and a lot of... Uh, a lot of those things that still sort of hold true today um, and also led to some of the decisions that we make about implants um, that we put in today. So this um, article is titled, A Comparison of Four Models of Total Knee Replacement Prosthesis. This was published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in 1976, and it was published by authors uh, Dr. John Insall, Dr. Chit Ranawat, uh, Dr. Paolo Agiletti and uh, Dr. John Shine, and this was out of the Hospital for Special Surgery. Now, also, you know, an interesting note now is, you know, if you published an article today, um, you would have a huge, you know, laundry list of, of references at the end of your study. So one of the other things that sort of jumped out at me, I was sort of interested to see was um, they had two references, so it shows you how cutting edge they were, and this article was at the time. Um, there was one reference um, to an article also um, authored by Dr. Um, Insall titled High Tibial Osteotomy for Osteoarthritis of the Knee with Valgus Deformity. That was published in 1973. And the second reference was on the Symposium of Total Knee Replacements, Clinical Orthopedics, 1973. You know, so, so when this came out, it was uh, actually very, very interesting. And they broke this paper down. Um, and, and what we're going to talk about is really two types of prosthesis that they looked at. Um, they performed 193 arthroplasties. 87 of these were in osteoarthritis and 106 of these were in rheumatoid arthritis. And that's a huge difference. So I even remember when I started, you know, my training, the majority of patients that we took care of um, were rheumatoids. And, you know, and now I, I see very few of them because the DMARDs are so good, the diseases are well controlled, the joint restriction, uh, destruction is very minimal. So, you know, I'm sure what you have seen is a lot of osteoarthritis and very, very few of rheumatologic patients. And when they talked about you know, what implants they were using was really two main designs. So they used three different types of uh, condylar replacements and one type of hinge. So in their condylar replacements, um, they did use the unicondylar. This was an anatomic design. They had medial and lateral um, components, and this allowed for up to 120 degrees of flexion. This was used for patients with osteoarthritis that was isolated in one compartment. And the requirements was that these patients had full or near full extension and at least 90 degrees of flexion. They were passively correctable to neutral. And the opposite compartment had normal or near normal findings at the time of surgery. So, you know, if you think about this was 1973 or 76 rather, um, they made these criteria 
um, with very, very little history behind them, which are things that you all now take for granted as, you know, I'm taught these are the indications for this surgery and that surgery. And they were really paving the way. So they had these requirements. Um, there were 29 of these uh, performed in their group of 193. So the second type of condylar replacement was what was called the duocondylar. There was no anterior flange. So it was basically two halves, almost like two unis, but they were connected by a bar. And they had two separate tibial polys, and this allowed for preservation of the cruciate ligaments. This allowed for up to 120 degrees of flexion, and this was used in patients that had rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis if they didn't meet the criteria for a uni. Um, It was anatomic, so it was suitable um, if there was minimal deformity, um, minimal instability, and there was no significant flexion contracture. And what they discussed is they really limited the use to knees that had a less than 25 degree flexion contracture and less than 10 degrees of malalignment. There were 64 of these put in, 20 in osteoarthritis, 44 in rheumatoid patients. Now the geometric um, condylar replacement was um, another similar design, um, but with some slight differences. So this was a non-anatomic design. There was a constant radius of curvature and the tibia was one piece, but it was actually two halves that were connected by an anterior bar, and it offered more of a constraint, almost what you would see with like a, a CS, like a cruciate sacrificing, um, or even like a deep dish, um, or maybe even like a mild sort of medial pivot. These were more um, constrained and matched the curvature on the femoral component, but by having two separate halves that were connected by the bar, again, it allowed for the cruciates to be preserved, and this allowed 90 degrees of flexion. Um, It was used in similar patients to the duo, but in those patients that had slightly more deformity or slightly more instability. And what they found in this group is they could allow up to a 40-degree flexion contracture or 15 degrees of malalignment. Um, Now, the second main group, though, is the hinge, and they use one particular hinge in the study, the GIPAR. Um, so all the ligaments were sacrificed. Um, this was a fixed axis. The axle point was placed posterior to try to recreate the normal center of rotation of the knee. There was no rotation in this component. Um, like you see with many hinge designs today, they do have rotation built in. The stem had a built-in seven degrees of algus. And this was used in patients that had extreme deformity or instability. It was either secondary to rheumatoid or osteoarthritis. There were 50 of these put in, 22 in osteoarthritic patients, 28 in rheumatoid patients. Now, average age was 62. Um, and they briefly described their techniques. And they said that they used tourniquets in all patients, which again, now is starting, you know, everything has a sort of phase. Um, things come and things go. You know, now tourniquets are starting to be used less and less frequently as people are seeing um, less pain and improved quad function. Um, But back then, they were using tourniquets for all these patients. All patients had a median parapetal arthrotomy. Um, And the the duo and the geo um, were commonly put with the femur in a little bit more valgus and the tibia in more varus. So think of this as sort of the entry into this anatomic alignment or even kinematic where, you know, the joint line was oblique, but maybe more anatomic to allow for more normal 
recreation of how the ligaments would function. Now, this is what blows a lot of people away, though. You know, if you're younger, um, typical after surgery back then was patients were placed in a cast. So cast for a week. This was removed at a week. They allowed um, active weight bearing at that point and allowed range of motion, but it wasn't really pursued aggressively until the second week. And the big fear back then was the wound complications and the wound dehiscence. And they found that if the patients didn't achieve 90 degrees of flexion by three weeks, they all had a manipulation under anesthesia. And for a lot of patients, you know, 70s, even 80s, I mean, a lot of these patients spent weeks in the hospital. Some even came in prior to surgery and actually were, you know, optimized and worked up in the hospital prior to the actual planned surgical date. So very, very different now from the, you know, 24-hour admission, same-day discharge, you know, joint replacements that you're seeing today. But they had a lot of the same complications that we see. So interestingly enough, back then, routine prophylaxis was not used unless there were severe indications for it. And their venothromboembolic rate was 5%. They had four perineal nerve palsies, which luckily all resolved. But again, as expected in the patients that had severe flexion contractures or valgus deformities preoperatively, um, six hematomas, a bunch of patients with drainage, nine of which had infections, uh, five wound dehiscences, and they had uh, three early deep infections. Interestingly, they were all in patients that had the hinge and three late infections, which interestingly were all, all in patients that had the geo, um, two dislocations, one duo, one geo, and loosening three unis, three duos, two geos, one hinge. Um, now, results, and they used their um, hip or the, the hospital for special surgery uh, knee scoring system 47 um, patients were graded as excellent, 66 is good, 37 fair, 28 is poor. And what they did find though is the patients, for the most part, that had the hinges had the worst pre op scores and had the best post-op scores. And that's something that I've always hypothesized about, you know, we're operating on younger and younger patients and patients with less and less severe disease, but they're all getting the same implant. They're all potentially able to obtain the same maximum result. So if you have somebody who has better pre-op scores, their delta is going to be less. So those are patients that are more likely, and we see this, you know, in the 50-year-olds that are less likely to be satisfied um, with the results of the joint replacements because they didn't see as much of a change. Whereas if you have patients that may be older, more infirm, or have severe deformity, you know, if they reach that same maximum point of return at the end of the surgery and rehab, they're significantly happier because the improvement or the delta has been so much greater for them. You know, it's all based on you know, how it looks from where you're standing or where you started. Now, they did have um, 28 failures. These were either classified as either having revisions um, or less than 60 points um, on their scoring system. Now, the interesting thing, and, and this is where, you know, I, I, you know, I find from these older articles, you know, that although you're not reading much as far as the technique or the importance of the implant, because you're not going to be implanting these particular devices, um, there are a lot of interesting things that you can take away, or you can be very impressed by their forward thinking um, at the time. So, you know, what they found was patients that had um, prior padelectomy had very poor muscle power. And that's something that we know now, but something that you don't typically see padelectomies perform much anymore, but if they do show up to your office and need a total knee replacement, it is something that's important to keep in mind. Um, 
none of these devices at the time had provisions for patellofemoral function. Um, so what was interesting, and, and what I'm going to quote what they said, quote, therefore, none of the models used are total knee replacements in the strict sense. Because um, it brings up this discussion that people were talking about more recently as more and more people now are not resurfacing the patella. So if you do not resurface the patella, is it technically a total knee replacement or should it be billed as two unis? Although common modern day total knee replacements do have a provision that trochlea, which is replaced. So you're basically doing a hemi-resurfacing of the patellofemoral joint and you're doing, you know, bicondylar resurfacing in the medial and lateral compartment. So I think it would still be considered a total knee replacement, but it's something that people have brought up is that, you know, if you don't resurface the patella, is that technically a total knee replacement? I think based on this sort of definition, the fact that the prosthesis has a trochlea groove, then it therefore is a total knee replacement. But the other interesting thing, and I'm going to quote what they said here also, is, quote, the complaint of pain after patelectomy was as frequent in those patients as in patients in whom patelectomy had not been performed. So even when they started doing these procedures, they still had a lot of the same problems that we see with anterior knee pain. Um, and it was this enigma as to where it's coming from. Well, is it from the patella? Well, these patients had a patelectomy, so they can have pain from the patella. Well, because they had a patelectomy, do they have weakness in the muscle? Well, maybe they have weakness or pain from the weakness. And that's the big question today. So if somebody presents without a resurfaced patella and they have anterior knee pain, the simple knee-jerk reaction for most surgeons is, oh, well, they didn't resurface your patella. I'll sign you up for revision and we'll resurface your patella and all your knee pain will be gone. And still, that's not the case and it's not 100% successful. So if someone has weakness or if there's some other underlying kinematic issue um, that we may not be able to ascertain, you may still not fix that person's pain, even by putting a plastic button on the back of their patella. Um, the other thing, loosening. So they noticed radiolucent lines um, around, the prost- around the prosthesis back then with a lot of frequency. Um, but what they did notice and what we now, you know, the mantra that you've heard over and over again is when the line becomes wider is what they described it as, you know, progressive increased radio loosencies. Um, and they also noted associated with pain and weight bearing, this re- represents failure of fixation. So you want to make sure that you understand all the radiographic findings um, for loosening. And, you know, what they also um, concluded at the end was that, um, the advantage of a uni over the bicondylar, the duo or the geo, um, was not demonstrated back then. So they recommended osteotomy um, or bicondylar in all patients. They recommended against the uni back then. And that's come and gone and come and gone where, you know, you know, unis are very popular and then they had failure rates. People went back to totals. You know, now unis are becoming a lot more popular. And, you know, I agree. My patients that have unis all like that better than a total. Um, it feels more normal and more natural because kinematically, you know, the cruciates and the two of the compartments are still theirs. They're normal. So, you know, you've replaced less than a third of their knee. You know, I consider people talk about the compartments, you know, patellofemoral, lateral, medial, a third, a third, a third, but you can't forget, I think the cruciates, almost considering the notch as like a sort of a compartment in the sense, because there's a lot of kinematics that occur there that when you remove those, um, 
even if you were doing, you know, a medial and a lateral and a patellofemoral separately and preserving the cruciates, um, kinematically that functions more like their normal knee than doing a total and sacrificing the cruciates. But that has still been sort of the bane of arthroplasty is really designing implants that allow preservation of the cruciates and are able to be put in with great frequency without difficulty and good outcomes. Um, and that's something that you may see, you know, in the future. But what they um, further surmised, you know, is that the unsolved problem, and again, back 1976, unsolved problem is patella femoral arthritis and retention of the patella and um, retention of strength of the extensor mechanism is still sort of the unsolved problem that they were unable to come up with an answer for back then. And the other thing that they even saw way back then in 1976, which we still believe and see today, is that, um, and they said, and I'll quote this again too, um, you know, they said, quote, it is apparent that none of the prosthesis replacing the knee joint offer results approaching the excellence of total hip replacement in terms of either relief of pain or improvement in function, end quote. So I'll kind of leave you with that. So again, some kind of food for thought. So it was just, you know, an interesting article, a good classic piece, you know, one of the early papers on joint replacements around the knee. Um, and although you may not put those implants in there, it really brings up a lot of the same thought processes and helps you see, you know, how the continuum over time has occurred and how a lot of the same questions are still happening this many decades later on the patellofemoral joint, the cruciates, unis versus totals, and how total knee replacements are still not as good as hip replacements as far as the result for the patient. So thanks again for listening. Um, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. If you like what you're hearing, uh, leave a review that helps other people like you find it. Um, share it with your colleagues, share it with your residents, um, share it with the interns, share it with the medical students. You know, there's a little bit of information for all of those people on different levels. And again, if you have questions or if you have topics that I haven't covered um, and that you would like to hear in future episodes, you know, shoot me an email, um, shoot me a DM. You can find me on Twitter. Um, leave something in the comments. And thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.